We are in John chapter 17. We're going to read verses 20 through 26. Anyone need a Bible? Please slip up your hand. We'll get you a Bible. So John chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. And as I always say, we may not get any, I may not get anything else right today, but at least we've read the Word of God, right? Be a Berean. Make sure. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world is not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love which you get, love me may be in them and I in them. So, Lord, we just let, lift up this word to you now. And, Lord, I pray that as we talk about unity here this morning, Lord, that we would leave here unified in that one simple message that is repeated throughout the gospel, Lord, throughout the, throughout the Bible, that you came to save sinful man from his sin that you came to redeem us, Lord, this lost and dying world. Lord, let that message resonate in us and through us, that we may be unified in that one purpose, Lord. So go before us now. We ask it in your name. Amen. Now you can be seated. It's still that Catholic left in me, you know, the Catholic calisthenics. <laughs> Sit, kneel, prayer, uh, stand. So we're finishing up today. I'm kind of sorry we are because I've learned a lot in this prayer. It's hard to believe that 26 verses, there's so much meat in there. And the Lord's really blessed us to be able to unpack this as we've gone along. So we're finishing up the series now. And uh, we're, we're looking at the tools that Jesus has given us, that Jesus has prayed for us to receive through this prayer. Tools that help us to overcome a world that keeps trying to, to pull us back in. And so far, we've looked at 11 ways that will help us overcome this world. First, we looked at prayer, right? Overcomers are people of prayer. Next was glorifying. Not ourselves, but lifting God up to this lost and dying world. And then thirdly, we looked at obedience. Overcomers are doers of the word, not just hearers only. Manifesting was number four. Overcomers are in the world proclaiming the word the living word to this world. Did I say world? It's the word. Overcomers are people of the word, right? Sixthly is security. We have overcome this finite world because we have eternal security. We're, we have the confidence of where we're going when we leave this earth. Seventh was joy. We have the joy of Jesus in us in the midst of sorrow. Overcomers are filled with the joy of the Lord. Eight, different. We're different. Overcomers are different than the rest of the world. Nine, 
persevere. Overcomers persevere to the end. And ten set apart. Overcomers are set apart for the Lord, for the Lord's service in this world. Eleven was engaged. Overcomers engage the world around us. We engage them in word and in deed. We tell the world about Jesus. And so today we're going to finish up the prayer of Jesus and, and one final way we overcome this world, and that word is unity. Unity. We overcome the world by sticking together. We're unified in truth, the Bible tells us. Therefore, true unity is based on truth. The truth we discovered last week comes in a three-volume set. The Bible, which is the truth of God's word, the Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. So these are the truths that unify us, that makes us one with Him and one with each other. And as we're going to discover, that unity is going to be the glue that holds all of these other tools that we've been looking at together. Unity is what's, what's enabling us to reach out to the people of the world because as Jesus said, I do not take them out of the world. So he's left us behind here. And he's left us behind for a reason, which we're going to discover this morning, hopefully. But we've been left behind, not to be part of the world, but we have a very specific purpose. He has a very specific plan for each of us. And so it's unity that helps us, enables us to reach the world around us. And I believe that when we see the people of this world as captives in a world system, a world system that's leading them straight into hell, like a raft caught in a, in a rapids going straight over the falls, right? I mean, that's how quickly this world is moving toward hell. I think if we start to see it that way, that they're just captives in a world system that we were held captive by at one point, but have come out of, when we see them that way, it's going to place a greater priority on us to tell them the truth. It's going to place a greater burden on us a greater desire to want to share the gospel message. So Jesus is finishing up his prayer in these last few verses, and I pray that you've learned as much from this prayer as I have. So he says in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but for those also who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus has stopped somewhere between the Temple Mount and the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's lifted his eyes towards heaven and he's praying. This is a powerful prayer. I don't think you'll ever read this prayer the same way again, will you? A prayer that he prays not only for the disciples that are around him as he's praying, but for you and I. For centuries, for the disciples that would come to know him centuries later. But every disciple that will come to know him throughout the ages have come to know him through these, the witness of these disciples. They've told people and they've told people and they've told people and here we are today it's amazing how the message has grown and spread and so he reveals how we all came to know him through the words of the disciples standing around him the words jesus the word that jesus uses for word is logos logos means teaching it's the commandments it's the apostles doctrine jesus had given them a commandment before he left before he ascends into heaven, what did Jesus say to them? He tells them to teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, Matthew 28, 20. So Jesus commanded them before he left this world to teach others what he has taught them. 
And that begins by proclaiming the good news, the death, the resurrection, and ascension into heaven of Jesus Christ. It all begins with that. Without that gospel message, without people coming to the Christ, without, being, without other followers of Christ, none of the other teachings matter, do they? It all focuses, it all pivots on that one particular message, the gospel message. Once the gospel message has been preached, once people come to Christ and believe in Christ, are followers of Christ, then they could be taught all of what Jesus has taught them, all of what Jesus has taught us. Paul wrote, how then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, Romans 10, 14 through 15. So four things to remember here. People come to be disciples of Jesus Christ through the words of other disciples. You got that? Second, people have been sent. Have you been sent? Not sure? Jesus pretty made it pretty simple for all of us. He said, go. Go. Go teach others about Jesus. Go proclaim the gospel to them. Third, that cannot happen unless we what? Go. Pretty simple. It's a pretty simple command. Unless we get up and go out and share the message. Unless we get off the couch and go out and share the message, we can't, we can't share the message unless we leave our house. And sometimes that means getting out from behind our fears. It means getting out past our apprehensions and our lack of confidence. Fourth, how will they know unless we open our mouths? It's not enough to just go we have to also proclaim. We have to proclaim the gospel message. And so Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for you and I. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for this room full of people. And he has sent us out to tell others what we have been told, what we've experienced, what Jesus has done in our lives. We all have a story to share. Listen, we have no excuse. We cannot say we haven't been called because Jesus said, Go. We don't have to have a church meeting to decide whether we should go out and share the gospel message or not. Jesus has already made that pretty clear for us. We can't say that we don't know what to say because Jesus said, tell them what I've taught you. We can't say that we haven't been sent to share the gospel message at work or at the gym or in the store, etc. Because he said, go into all the nations, right? So unless the places that you go to are outside of our nation, then... You've all been sent. We've all been sent. We have no excuse. We can't say, I'm afraid to share the gospel message because Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we have the power. We have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside us. We have the power to overcome all of this, all that the, the enemy can throw in our way. And please don't miss the most important aspect of what Jesus is saying here. We get to do this. We get to share the gospel message. What an awesome, awesome responsibility that's being bestowed upon us. Us. He's entrusted us to share what's been shared with us. To witness to someone about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. To be a witness to somebody about how Jesus saved us by the shedding of his blood. We get to be part of that. I think we forget that sometimes. We look at it as some kind of chore or task. 
It's an honor and a blessing. We get to do this. We get to, to share the new birth, to share in the new birth of a believer, a new believer. It's amazing. I don't know if any of you have ever had the, the absolute honor, the most humbling experience of our lives is to share the message of the gospel with someone and have them come to Christ. What an awesome experience that is. So we get to do this. How cool is that? Just for emphasis. Please don't ever take that for granted. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. It's a privilege to watch someone become part of God's family, to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. So as long as we have breath in our lungs, we are called, we are sent to preach the gospel message, to proclaim Jesus to this lost and dying world. Verse 21 says, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So it's unity. It's unity. We've over, we overcome this world by sticking together. Now there's unity in the Spirit. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And second, there's the unity of believers. Paul wrote again to the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another... Guys all agreeing with each other? In what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that be perfectly united in mind and thought. Listen, we desperately need both in the, in the body of Christ today. We need to be of one accord in the Spirit, and we need to be of one accord with each other. Why? Because we are in a battle, aren't we? Now, if you spoke to a Marine, or a soldier, or an airman, or even a seaman, and ask them if the same discrimination exists on the field of battle that exists in the street today, and they tell you that in a, in a, on the field of battle there is no race, there is no ethnicity, there is no color on the battlefield. They are one. They are a cohesive fighting unit. And I believe that's the same unity Jesus is speaking of here, that we're all in this battle together, and it's important that we stick together in this battle. Now, if you were to ask any military strategist how they plan a war, they would tell you that there's three phases, three phases rather, to any battle plan. First, there's an objective, like we have to take that hill over there. Second, there's a strategy, and the strategy is really the plan to achieve that objective. And then third, there's the tactics used, and the tactics are what used to carry out that strategy to achieve your objective. And so since we're in a battle, a spiritual battle, let me ask you this. What's God's objective in this battle? His objective is stated in these verses that we just read this morning. In verse 21, the second half of verse 21, he says, that the world may believe that you, that God the Father, sent me. In verse 23, the second half of that verse, he says, 
that the world may know that you have sent me. So the objective of God in this battle is that the world knows Jesus Christ. That the world knows that God sent Jesus into this world to what? To save the world. So we've been left behind. We've been left here to engage in this battle, a battle for souls. The church exists not to make the world a better place through social programs. That's not what we're here for. It, that's nice. It's all well and good that we do those things and those things are needed, but that's not our core existence. That's not what we're here for. The church exists to reach the world with the message of the gospel. That's why we're here, to tell them why Jesus came, to tell them of God's mercy and of his grace. And the way we do that is called evangelism. We are called to evangelize the world. When asked to define world evangelism, one man said, world evangelism is the attempt to give every man an opportunity to make an intelligent choice of whether to receive or reject Jesus Christ. That's exactly what the word evangelize means. It's not an attempt to save everyone we come in contact with, because that just gets discouraging, doesn't it? Many people that we witness to, they, they just walk away from us and never accept Christ. What we're called to do is plant seeds to make the world around us aware of who Jesus is. What they do with that knowledge once we've presented it to them is between them and the Lord. But we're just called to plant seeds. So the objective is to reach the world with the gospel. Then what's the strategy? That it be done as one. There's a unity there. Unity is the strategy. When we look around the church today as a whole, we may not agree on a lot of things. And we don't. But if you look at most churches, I would say the majority of churches, they all have some sort of evangelism program within the church. Many of you have come out of other churches. Did you have an evangelism program there? Did you have ways of reaching the world? Most churches do. In that regard, we are of one accord. Listen, we're all different. Unity doesn't mean that we all dress the same, we all look the same, or we all believe the same things. It means that we're united in our belief of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, and that the only way for the world around us to get to heaven is through him. That's what unifies us. We're all united in our belief that the word of God, his divine word, is inerrant. And it's from that very foundation that we can spread the gospel message in unity. If we don't believe that Jesus is the only way, if we don't believe that he died for our sins, if we don't believe that the word of God is inerrant, then we are not in unity. And the reason we're not in unity is because to teach anything different than that is to teach a false gospel. So we're unified in certain unmovable, unchangeable, uncompromising biblical doctrines. But that doesn't mean we can't be different because many of us are different. It's called God's manifold wisdom. Now that word manifold means multicolored. It's like the coat that Jacob gave Joseph, a multicolored coat. It means that God's wisdom has made us all, in God's wisdom, he's made us all different for a reason. So that those who don't know Christ can relate better to someone that does know Jesus who looks and dresses and acts more like they do. And what I mean by that is, for instance, a biker might find it easier to accept Christ from another biker. A soldier might find it easier to accept Christ from another soldier. 
A person covered in tattoos and piercings may relate better to a Christian brother or sister who has tattoos and piercings. You get the point? It's not always the case, but sometimes for certain people, they do find it more comfortable to be witnessed to by somebody up here. So Christians come in all shapes and sizes and colors, and we're all uniquely created to reach others in this world with the gospel message. So, okay, if, if reaching the world with the gospel message is the objective and unity is the strategy, what are the tactics to reach that objective? And the answer to that is found in verse 26. Jesus has made known the name of God. Jesus has made known the very nature of God through the word of God. So we're to use the word of God to tell the world about the God that we've come to know and love through his word. Perhaps that gives us a little more insight into why the enemy attacks the word of God like he does. That's why the enemy goes out of his way to discredit the word of God, because he knows the power of the word to change people's lives and to free them from the bondage of the enemy. So it's, it's the very tactic that God has used throughout the ages to reach this dying world with the word of God. And he does that through the children of God. He does that through you and I. And along with the word of God, he gives us many other tools as we've been looking at in this prayer that Jesus prayed for each one of us. Tools like we've been unpacking here. Prayer, glorifying God, obedience to the word, manifesting God through our lives. The word, preaching the word, proclaiming the word, our eternal security. The fact that we know Christ, the fact that we know that we're going, that we know that we know that we know that we're going to heaven is what the world needs to hear. The joy that resides in each one of us, the joy even in the midst of sorrow and pain. The world needs to see that we're different. The world needs to see us persevere through trials. The world needs to see that we're set apart. And we show them that by engaging with them and telling them about the Lord. And the world needs to know that we're unified. Maybe not in every detail, but we're unified in the one that matters the most, that Jesus is the only way and that the world needs to hear that he died for them. So when we consider all that we have, all that Jesus has prayed for each one of us to have, we know that that's exactly what the world needs to hear. Think about this. Jesus prayed this prayer over 2,000 years ago. He prayed it for you and I. And the request that he made of God the Father is still being fulfilled in the lives of Christians today. The fulfillment of this prayer provides all of these tools that we've been talking about to help us to not, over, not only overcome the world, but to also reach the world for Christ. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. So God has shared his glory with his Son. And Jesus revealed the glory of God by revealing the very nature, his essence, to us. But how do we accurately describe the glory of God? One of the simplest ways, one of the simplest words to use is beauty. The psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Psalm 19.1 So creation declares the glory of God. What do we think of, what do we think about when we see the unspoiled beauty of creation? We think how beautiful this is, Lord. We're, we're all inspired by it. And Isaiah tells us that the glory of God fills this earth, that his glory can be seen in creation. In fact, 
Let's talk about Isaiah for a minute. Isaiah was allowed to see the glory of God as God sat on his throne. That throne room of grace just opened up and became clearly visible to Isaiah. Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, and he heard the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So the glory of God is also revealed in his holiness. So we have at least two descriptions of the glory of God, holiness and beauty. But I think it's impossible to fully describe God's glory because it can't be contained in just a couple of verses or any one specific term. Beauty and holiness are two of them, but there's also his mercy and his grace. And his mercy and his grace have been revealed to us through his glory. Isaiah stands in the presence of God, and he's become, as he stands there in God's presence, he becomes more aware of his what? Of his sin. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah, is ex- he's ex- what he's experiencing is that he has fallen short of the glory of God. So God, in his mercy and his grace, sends an angel with a burning coal to cleanse the lips of Isaiah. And he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Isaiah is cleansed from his sin. So God's glory showed Isaiah his uncleanness. And in God's glory showed Isaiah mercy and grace by cleansing him of his sin. We see another example of God's glory revealing his mercy and grace in Moses. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God shows him his grace and his mercy. God has once again revealed his glory through his mercy by sending his son to die for our sins. John tells us in chapter 12 that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The glory that, of God that Isaiah witnessed was the glory of Jesus. Jesus is the very embodiment of God's mercy and grace. When we witness Jesus through the word of God and, and through the testimony of the apostles, we see the glory of God. We see the grace and mercy of God in Jesus covered in flesh. Through the ages, people have cried out to God, Lord, show me your glory. And God has answered that prayer. God has shown us through his son, his glory. God has shown us his mercy and his grace by sending his perfect spotless son to this earth to die for the sins of all mankind and when we're made aware of his perfection we in turn are made keenly aware of our uncleanness and so we come to Jesus through his mercy and his grace and we're forgiven of our sins and we're cleansed of all unrighteousness and that's the message that we've been set apart to deliver to this world that we obtain God's mercy and grace through faith in Christ And Jesus has given us his glory. He has given us his mercy and his grace. And it's now our mission, if you will, to reveal God's glory, to reveal God's mercy and grace to others, to tell them through our faith in Jesus Christ 
that we receive salvation, that we receive God's mercy and grace, and tell them why, why we needed to be saved, and what we needed to be saved from. Sometimes evangelism, sometimes getting that message out there is as simple as telling our story. Borrowing from the, borrowing from the definition of, of the world evangelism, we are to give every man an opportunity to make an intelligent choice of whether to receive or reject Jesus Christ. And that's it. That's what we've been left behind to do. To plant seeds, to reveal the glory of God to this lost and dying world. The glory of God through his mercy and grace. The glory of God through his son who dwells inside each of us. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Verse 23. Listen, we may attend different fellowships, we may speak different languages, we may worship differently, look differently, but we all share a common bond. We have all been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have all been saved through the Messiah. We have all experienced His grace and mercy. Listen, unity in the body of Christ is a major threat to the enemy. Let me say that again. Let it sink in. Unity in the body of Christ is a major threat to the enemy. And if you don't believe that, just look at all the different denominations we have around the world today. Satan has worked very hard in trying to split up the church. But what we tend to forget, what Satan missed, is something that Jesus said to Peter. Peter, who had revealed that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he is the Christ. Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It wasn't upon Jesus that Peter said, it wasn't upon Peter, rather, that Jesus said he would build his church. It was upon, upon the revelation of Peter that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God. The church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the rock. If it had been built upon man, the gates of hell would have prevailed against it before it was ever established. Satan hasn't broken up the church. Satan hasn't divided the church. Or else what Jesus said wouldn't be true. What Satan feel to grasp is it's not about our differences. It's about what unifies us. And what unifies us, what we're built on, our foundation, is Jesus Christ. We don't stand upon any denomination. We stand upon the rock, Christ Jesus. We don't reveal the church to the world. We reveal Jesus to the world. We don't tell the world the church sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. We tell the world that God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. And Jesus didn't come to save the church. He came to save the world. The church is just a place that people who are saved get to hang out with one another. We get to meet, to be edified, to be built up so that we can go back into the world and tell the world what God has done in our lives, what Jesus Christ has done for us, that we've been set free from the bondage of sin. Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the very heart of Jesus we see here, that all who have been united to him through the ages were all together with him, in heaven. And that's where that unity culminates. We're all together with him in heaven. So that's another thing that unites us as Christians. 
heaven. We're united spiritually and we are united eternally. We share the common bond of Jesus Christ as our Lord and we also share a common home, heaven. We may live, we may be scattered all over the world now, but one day we will be united together with him in heaven and with each other. So learn to get along with each other now because you're going to see each other's faces for a very long time. You know, I always dreamed that if I ever came into a lot of money, that I would just buy a huge plot of land and build homes for all my kids and my grandchildren. Just so we'd be close. Just so they'd have to see me every day. God has the same desire. He wants all his children gathered together with him in one place. Jesus left this earth over 2,000 years ago. And ever since he's left, he's been preparing a place for each of us. Can you imagine how magnificent that must be? How many places there are? There's a place for every single believer so that we'll all be together with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. So in a sense, this prayer that Jesus is praying, that Jesus is already feeling home. He's already part of that. He, he's already out of this world in his mind. He's, he's in heaven already with his Father. And in a sense, he's kind of praying for us to have that same feeling that we're more heavenly minded than we are earthly minded, that we're more focused on heaven and the things of God than we are the things of this world. And so we get to experience a little bit of heaven here on this earth through the presence of God who dwells in us. Through his love, through his mercy, through his grace, we get to see a little bit of heaven here on this earth. Amen? O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. God is righteous, which means innocent faultless, guiltless. And that's the bar that has been set for us. And that's what Jesus means when he prays that we would be one as him and the Father are one. Jesus, the spotless, blameless, perfect Lamb of God, has set the standard. He has set the bar for all of those who want to go to heaven. Perfection. That's the bar. That's what's been set. And so we know from Scripture that none of us are perfect. The Bible tells us none are righteous, not one. And that's the biggest misconception that this world is under. That's one of the greatest lies the enemy has told this world, that man through his own good works can achieve righteousness and achieve a righteous standing before God. That message that we have for the world has to be a unified message, that there is none righteous, not one, that there's none that none could be made righteous through their own works. That there's only one who was truly righteous. Only one who was perfect. Only one who was spotless. Only one who came into this world without sin. And that's Christ Jesus. And as the Bible is already established, and we already know that the only way to enter heaven is to be like Jesus. Righteous. Righteous. So the message the world needs to hear is that Jesus is the only righteous one. That he died for the sins of the world so that all who come to faith in him... All who become his followers may, may, may obtain his righteousness, be covered by his righteousness. Yesterday, my son Brian and I took the boys to a, a place in New Jersey called Kids Village. You probably all got sick of seeing the pictures on Facebook. But I paid the price for us all to enter into this place. 
I'm not bragging. I'm not bragging. There's a point to that. On the way in, the girl marked each one of our hands with a number. And that number identified us as one, one group. And although I was the one who paid the price, the mark identified us all as one, as being together. Jesus paid the price for all of us to get into heaven. All the followers of Jesus Christ have been marked by the righteousness of Jesus. His righteousness has been imparted to us. It makes us one with him, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. It links us all together as a group. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ and only through his righteousness that we can enter heaven. He paid the price for us to do that. I love this statement made by one commentator. He said, on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he were a sinner, though he was perfectly holy and pure. And we are treated as if we're righteous, though we are defiled and depraved. On account of what the Lord Jesus has endured on our behalf, we are treated as if we had entirely fulfilled the law of God and have never become exposed to its penalty. We have received this precious gift of righteousness from the God of all mercy and grace. To him be the glory. The world needs to hear that truth so that it counteracts the lies that the enemy has told them. The world needs to hear that Jesus is the only way, that it is by his righteousness alone that we enter into heaven. But just know that even though we may present the truth to them, they may choose to continue to believe the lie. The world also needs to hear the name of God declared to them. The author of Hebrews wrote, One being the, who being the, righteous, the brightness rather, of his glory and the expressed image of his person, Hebrews 1.3, meaning that Jesus revealed and lived out the glory of God the Father by declaring the nature and character of God to his disciples. The brightness of the glory of God was seen in Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus in all of his radiant glory. Let me ask you guys this this morning. What if others around us got to see us in our glorified state? What if they got to see Jesus shining through us? And what if we saw people, not as the world sees them, not like the Pharisees saw them. Remember when Jesus ate with the sinners? The Pharisee said, how, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And you can almost hear the disdain as you read those words in their voice. They were treated, these people were treated and looked upon as lower class citizens, not worthy of God's love. And Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What if we saw them as God sees them? Sinners just like us, who need to repent of that sin, who need to turn to Christ, who need to be made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. What if we saw the people around us? What if we saw this world as just sheep in need of a, of a, of a shepherd, as sinners in need of a savior? What if we saw them not only with the eyes of God, but with the heart of God? A heart that loved us before the foundation of the world. A heart that loved us enough that he sent his only begotten son to die for our sin. What if? Do you know that we can? We can. We can see them and love them as God sees and loves us. Because we have him living inside of us. 
We have his eyes. We just need to focus them through the lens of God, not the lens of this world. We have his heart. We just need to filter that love through the cross. The cross is how God showed his amazing love for us. It's not what the world calls love. What the world calls love is, I love you because of what you can do for me. The love that God has for us says, there is nothing you must do. I have done it all for you on the cross. If we see people and love people as God saw and loved us, it would change our interactions with them forever. So we must always be asking God to search our hearts, to reveal any wickedness in us. Asking God to reveal, what do others see in me? How do others see you through me? What do they feel when they're around me? What do they hear when I speak? And it's important for us to know that because what they see, what they hear, what they feel can mask the message of the gospel, not declare it. The other day, Dan sent me a text reminding me of how hot it was going to be Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And as I began to read the first part of that text, I thought immediately, Dan's going to suggest that we cancel church this Sunday, the nerve of that man. <laughs> but Dan, being filled with the Holy Spirit, suggested that we get a cooler, buy some water and some ice, and go to places where the homeless are and give, just give out a bottle of cold water and a gospel track. Now, one woman who received a bottle of cold water said, where's your church? Because any church that would come out on a day like this and hand out cold water, I want to go to that church. Now, I tell you that not to build up CCLV or, or to brag about how great we are, because we aren't. We're just a building filled with sinners saved by God's grace. Amen? I tell you this to show you how easy it is to show someone else the love of God. When they handed out the water, when they handed out just a cold bottle of water and a gospel tract, people saw, they heard, they felt the presence and love of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and if you give even a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. Declaring Jesus to this world is as simple as being obedient to the word of God. So all you spirit-filled saints... When we leave here today, let's tell the world about Jesus. So that they see him, that they hear him, that they experience him through us. Because that's what we're called to do. That's what we're sent to do. That's, what, that's why he didn't take us out of this world. He's left us here to do just that. So let's do what we've been commanded to do. Let's be a witness to him to all the ends of the earth. Let our love for him be the glue that unites us so that we show the world a united front. We show the world the love of Christ through us. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we just pray that the world would see you in us, Lord. And I know, Lord, that I know that I fail at that almost daily, Lord. And I pray that my eyes would stay focused on you, that I would see people as you see them, that my heart would stay in tune with your heart, Lord, that I would love them as you love them, that it would, my heart would break for the things that breaks yours. So, Lord, go before us today. Help us to be that witness that you've called all of us to be. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys.